This episode of the Backside Ground Balls podcast is presented by The Performance Academy. For all of your athletic training needs, train with purpose at The Performance Academy. TPA houses a number of training resources from private baseball and softball instruction to team sports performance classes. Utilize advanced technologies like output sports, hit tracks, and TrackMan to take your game to the next level. On top of our elite staff and advanced technological capabilities, be a part of the TPA family and take advantage of the many resources our facility has to offer. Want to go to a game? How about a concert? How about going to see classical music? Whatever you're into, there's only one place to get your tickets. Thankfully, we are partnered with SeatGeek, the essential resource for live events. For any of your ticket needs, make sure you go over to SeatGeek.com and use the code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL to receive $20 off your first purchase. Again, that is SeatGeek.com, promo code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL to receive $20 off your first purchase. We are super excited to announce that we are now partnering with Routine Baseball. For all of your clothing needs, athleisure, the sickest baseball gear you can get. We're talking hoodies, shorts, sweatpants, sunglasses, hats, any baseball style you can imagine. Routine Baseball has it, and we are now partnered with them. All you got to do is go to routine.com backslash backside ground ball. That's a mouthful, so I'm going to say it again. It's routine.com backslash backside ground ball and check out all the different options they have you will receive 10 percent off your order today one more time routine.com backslash backside ground ball and get 10 percent off your order today what's up everybody welcome back to the backside ground balls podcast where we are coming to you in person on the campus of university of delaware in newark delaware we have a super jam-packed day stocked with a facility tour but first we're lucky enough to be joined by head coach of the fighting blue hens coach greg mamula uh coach mamula is entering his second season with the fighting blue hens after a previous stop as the recruiting coordinator at florida atlantic university coach mamula thank you for joining us on the podcast Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for being here today. Of course. We're super fired up to be here, and we obviously appreciate you uh, welcoming, uh, welcoming us in and being able to to check out the facilities and sit down with you. Obviously, we have a pretty fun connection here, and now your recruiting coordinator and uh, Brian Torsani, who is after today going to be a three-time guest with us. So uh, he's uh, had his fair share of backside ground balls conversations. But kind of start us out with uh, how'd the fall go? Obviously, second season, a lot of changeover with the culture and things like that. How'd uh, recap the fall for us? No, it was a productive fall. Uh, we have an older, experienced group of position players, you know, in year two. So there wasn't as much teaching this year as last year on the position player side. It was more of just trying to grow guys as baseball players a lot of new faces on the pitching staff so there was a lot of teaching instruction going on um, with the pitching staff we had too many pitchers injured so didn't get to uh, inter squad as much as we had wanted in the fall we usually like to spend our fall inter squatting three days a week on the weekends and it turned into two for us but we made the most out of those two days and felt like we accomplished everything we needed to this fall Walk me through, so obviously you, you come into the University of Delaware, a place you had previously been as an assistant. Walk me through some of the you know challenges of that first year of trying to come in and, and set your culture and um, you know obviously evaluate what you have and, and you got to be ready to compete in the spring. You know, I think that can, that can be a little bit of a tough turnaround. You get in, there's a lot of newness to it, and, and you're trying to you know institute what you want and change some things I'm sure that guys are used to. What were some of those challenges when you first walked in here? Yeah, when you say that, Dan, the first thing I think of, the biggest challenge we had is we were acquiring a program that had been 500 a lot, so we had players that were used to being 500. So the greatest challenge is changing the expectation level of our players, and all we preached in year one is this program is not going to be 500 anymore, um, and we finished 30 and 29, but it felt like it felt like way more than one game over 500 because we struggled so much on the mound. Like, it felt like a great success to be there. And namely, I mean, going 17 and 13 last year in the CAA was a great accomplishment given it finished as the seventh best conference in college baseball last year by RPI. So felt like we were really good on the weekends, didn't play as well non-conference last year, but that was certainly the greatest challenge. And we would hope that we really start to see the 
the fruits of that labor this year where the expectation is so much more than being a 500 program. Yeah, and that, that's awesome. And, I mean, for a first-time head coach, I'm sure you – I mean, for a first year as a head coach here, I'm sure you'd have to be pretty happy with above 500. It might not be the goals that you're setting every time, but there's obviously a lot of change in culture and things like that that come into play. Um, but what made the position at here in Newark – University of Delaware, Dan and I are both local guys. What made it so attractive to you? Obviously, you worked here uh, previously from 2002 to 2006. So obviously, you were familiar with the the area, the program, everything that came with that. But, you know, what kind of drew you from nicer weather, to say the least, uh, up sure. north here and, and wanting to be the, the head guy here? Yeah, well, I had, as, you, as you had stated, I was here for five years as an assistant. Um, got married while I was here. Both our kids born in Christiana Care right down the road. So we had that connection. Um, I really enjoyed my time here. I really like Delaware and the success that this program has had um, over the years, the tradition, the alumni support. Like that was all the stuff that, you know, stuck with me. And then when I was able to get back up here and go through the interview process, it is a completely different athletic department now than what I knew in the 2000s um i joke when we would have an all staff meeting back then there would be like seven non-coaches in the meeting and now you go and it feels like there's 200 like the support staff here is unbelievable as we'll see as we move around campus today so the commitment to athletics the commitment to winning financially facilities that the school has put and obviously with the recent move of jumping up to fbs and football and moving to conference usa um, speaks to commitment to this athletic department so those are the things that really attracted me and the overriding part of what I just said is I really believe you can win and win at a high level here and believe that Delaware baseball should be one of the top programs in this part of the country someone who grew up locally that what you just said it fires me up a little bit because it's like you know just being around this campus and obviously in Delaware you kind of no matter where you are in the state you're close to this campus so knowing what kind of the tradition has been in, in growing through that. It's exciting to hear you talk about the commitment to it. And so then when you come in, how do you go about, you know, building that culture and getting the guys on the on, on the right, you know, right track for that? You talked about how they were kind of getting used to a five hundred season and you want to come in and be like, well that's not the expectation anymore, guys. Like we're we're gonna try and push this thing further. Yeah. Um how do you go about doing that? Is that something that you know, because I would imagine you got to come in and build trust with those guys first, right? Because they, they got to get to know you. But then how do you go about doing that? Sure. So when you ask that question, I, I go to let's make these guys love development. So as we say all the time in this office, we want the best two, three hours of their day to be at the field. It's going to be hard. It's, there's going to be intensity. It's going to be competitive, but they're going to love being there, love getting better. And when you can do that, that's when you really start to grow the program, right? There's a talent element that's necessary, but when guys love being around each other, love getting better at baseball, you hope that the, the love for winning, you know, follows. Right. So I think that's where, not I think, that's where we're headed with this program. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and kind of, I mean, talk about the, the vision. I mean, you've talked about being one of the best programs in the area. And, I, again, as Dan said, I mean, I think it's something that both I and Dan and I believe Delaware baseball can be. Um, and it has been in the past, quite frankly. I mean, CAA championships, opportunities to play in the regionals. What's kind of the, the big picture, like you're talking to a high school recruit and, and you're selling, hey, this is what we're building here. What's the vision of what you want Delaware baseball to be? I know our listeners would appreciate kind of hearing that from your perspective. Yeah. Winners want to win. You know, so we're trying to recruit kids that want to play for championships, play in the NCAA tournament. And we want all of our recruits to be guys with aspirations of playing professional baseball. You know, that would be... That would be the foremost for me is get guys that want to pl win, play for championships, play professional baseball, and obviously, you know, have the right talent that can help us win as well. So that's kind of the formula that we've been adhering to with our recruiting. When you as, – as a head coach, it's interesting because, you know, you come from being – you know, most recently you were an assistant where – you know, you have a lot of responsibilities, but, you know, your main thing is, is working with the hitters, diving in, in the weeds, making those guys better as hitters. You come to be a head coach and you have a million responsibilities now, right? You are the CEO. What's that adjustment been like for you? And how do you kind of go about, you know, okay, now I, I have to, you know, 
build a staff and I have to be able to still recruit and you're still working with the offense is my understanding and and you're kind of all of these things in one what's that adjustment been like because was there ever a point where you're like I don't know that first year where you're like I'm tired <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm you get home at night and you're like I need some some rest the first few months right drinking from the fire hydrant yep. from the fire hose as the saying goes for sure I actually slept on the floor in this yep. office for the first couple of months just because I, you know, I needed every hour of the day to, you know, to get started with hiring a staff and get players in for the next year in the transfer portal and all, uh, all that stuff. So it was difficult. I have not done a good job yet of getting to know our pitchers on a level where I need to, yeah. you know, I'm spending so much time with our hitters on a day-to-day basis. And I feel like, you know, I've established really good relationships with them, but I'm so deep and their success and trying to get our offense where it needs to be. So that's like another step for me as a younger head coach is, you know, treating the pitchers and getting to spend as much time getting to know them as much as I do the hitters. So that's been a little bit of a challenge somewhere I need to grow. So how have you adjusted in year two to kind of make up for what I'm assuming you felt like in year one, you didn't do a good enough job. Are you spending more time with the pitchers? Are you hanging out for their bullpens if they're coming early or, or staying late? How are you handling uh, kind of developing those relationships? Yeah. I, um, again, still need to grow, <laughs> still need to get better. I get so consumed with the process, you know, I need, I guess, just some days during BP and during practice, just leave the process and go be with the people. And that's the pitcher shagging in the outfield, just go have a conversation, which I do, but not enough with those guys. I need to do it more um, frequently, you know, as, as far as the relationship piece. Let's let's then talk about a little bit of the process. Um, you know, since you are kind of in the weeds with those hitters, what, what do you want – you know, the offense at Delaware to look like? What kind of things are you kind of trying to develop? You know, we we had a conversation, I guess, last week with the hitting coach, and we talked a lot about having a dynamic offense. You know, what is your kind of vision for the offense here? Yeah. Um, the players would probably tell you right away, homers and walks. Yeah, yep. You know, if we had to really simplify it, there's so much more to it. Last year, our goal was to average seven runs a game. We averaged 7.6. We returned seven of our nine hitters. So our goal this year is to average eight, eight yep. per game. Um, statistically, in Division One baseball, you win over 80% of your games when you score seven or more. So that's the type of offense we want to have. How are we going to get there? Well, we know that this field can play really small in the spring with the wind blowing hard out to right field many days. So that has to be part of our game, right? We need to be the best offense in our home field for those 27, 28 home games every year. So we're going to recruit. We're going to coach that way but so much of it for us is being great with the strike zone we're going to walk we're going to get the good hitters counts get the opposing pitchers pitch counts up and then when we hit baseballs we're going to hit them hard we need a lot of doubles a lot of homers so the old you know high ops equals a lot of a lot of runs and that's that's our development and that's our recruiting there's a ton of different ways I, I want to go um, from here, obviously, as a guy that uh, likes to get in the weeds on hitting. But the, the first thing I want to know is is kind of your development in your career. You told an absolute great story right when we walked in here about, you know, when you first started coaching, you worked for a specific coach that got more fired up about a 45 hopper that got through the, the, the four, five, or four, five, four three hole, right, um, with backside ground balls in the name of our podcast and things like that more than a home run. Obviously, things have changed. Information's come out. StatCast becomes a thing. You know, analytics become a thing. And that whole craze has kind of gone through your coaching career, right? And through the whole time. How have you adapted and changed from, you know, maybe not at that time when you started coaching, you might not have been as fired up about the the backside ground ball that the guy hit um, compared to the home run. But, you know, obviously information, technology, data, and everything has changed. But how have you adapted personally to, you know, have several stops throughout your career and just seem to carry success at every place. Yeah, constant growth, right, where I as a hitting coach and constantly trying to grow and get better for the hitters is, you know, is paramount with that. But to your point, like, I feel like this day and age, you have to slug to win in college baseball. I'm sure there's some anomalies of programs that don't have a high slugging percentage and still win. Those programs probably pitch at a 3 RA. Um, which is really difficult to do in our in our ballpark, right? So we're going to need a slug. Um, how do you do that, I guess, has been the adaptation for me. 
as far as how we've practiced, I've really changed over the last decade or so where BP and offense has become really challenging in mm -hmm. practice. You know, we make practice harder to make the game easier, whereas probably my first 15 years of coaching, um, hitting was easy. It was lay fastballs in and let guys yeah. do their thing in BP. So it's very rarely do we do feel-good BP. There's a time and a place for it, but most of our BPs and most of what we do as a hitting is – is challenging, it's focused, it's intense, it's competitive, and, you know, we see the results come game time as far as how we train the offense. Yeah, and um, kind of talk about those challenging environments because that's something that, you know, Coach Torsani and I did at Arcadia all the time. That was pretty much the first thing that I came in and said to a lot of the guys was like, listen, like, there's going to be times where you don't feel good after a day, but, you know, how many times do you find barrels in game? Like, if you go two for six in a round of six in practice and translate that to the game, like you're going to go one for three for the whole year. You're going to be pretty fired up about the success that you have. Um, you know, what are kind of some of the challenging environments do you, you guys do? Is it a lot of machine work, a lot of high velo? Are those kind of the main focuses with the challenging environments? Yeah, we love to – I love to hit on the field. Um, we're probably going to hit on the field six days a week. We're usually going to do three machine days, three arm days. Usually it's in every other. But, you know, also having the uh, wherewithal to know, like, okay, today's supposed to be an arm day, but we're better off going off the machine. Um, we'll hit off the machine pregame BP at, during home games. I wish we could take it on the road with us. We seem to hit better in games when we hit off the machine pregame. So, yeah, to your point, the machine velocity, we do a lot of double machine days where – One's a fastball, one's a breaking ball. When it is a coach throwing, again, we're going to be mixing pitches, you know, where it's fastball, slider, changeup. You don't know what's coming. We'll have it some rounds where they know what's coming, but the majority of it is that way. We have all kinds of crazy rules in our BP where you get kicked out of the turtle if you do this or don't do that, which the players, if they're here right now, would roll their eyes at. But <laughs> I'm a believer, and they work, right? Like, it creates a different level of learning for me um our stuff in the cage the guys are gonna have a warm-up period where it's easy it's t it's flip but then when practice starts when it's bp there's always going to be either a right hand or left hand breaking ball it's never just going to throw strike after strike we're constantly changing the elevation of the breaking balls um, we have a velocity machine in there we'll mess up timing by doing a two or three plate drill where they're moving around so it's just again like you never want it to get stale you want it to be no um you know, there to be a newness to it, but we are constantly just trying to make it harder and harder. And as guys get older, we have an older, more experienced team, we can continue to make BP harder and harder for these guys in hopes of making the game slow down for them. How do you create the, the buy-in? You know, you talk about the guys might roll their eyes if they, if they heard you, if they were here today. How do you create that buy-in? How do you, um, is it, is the key building that relationship and that trust with them so that when you, when you then are making practice challenging every day on them, that they're they're now buying into it? Is it, you know, obviously I'm sure when they start to see some of the success in game, that obviously helps. They're like, oh, this must be working a little bit. But how do you kind of create that buy-in off the jump of like, look, we're, we're not just going to lay fastballs in there and let you guys, you know, just turn and burn all day. Yeah. You know, how do you, how do you get them to believe in that? No, gone are the days where you just go out to the field and tell the players what to do. Yeah. And rightfully so. So, relationships always it's always going to start there with the trust and the guys know that you care about them and their development um, the other part that we do is we're going to sit down and watch a powerpoint on our hitting philosophy to set the standards before we ever set foot on the year on the field every fall so the guys they know the background where it's come from and hopefully it develops a little bit of excitement for them so they know going in like this is going to be challenging but we're going to be rewarded come game time with it so the buy-in these guys have been awesome you know we're awesome with all the stuff that we put in and last year again we averaged 7.6 runs a game like they yep. saw the results from an individual level and from a team level so it was it was an easy sell this year and when you bring new guys in they don't know any different they just do what you're doing and right. what the older guys are doing and when the older guys believe in it the younger guys automatically do all right, so to, I mean, you, you don't have to share it with me, even though I'd love to, but give us the Cliff Notes version of the the PowerPoint that you're talking about because I'm bought in. Like I'd love to, I'd love to have it. I won't share it with anybody. Um, you know, we'll make sure it stays in my inbox and in my inbox only. But but I'd love to know what's the Cliff Notes version of that 
that offensive philosophy um, PowerPoint that you give to the guys each and every year? It is going to start with the history um, of Delaware baseball, the history of the offenses that I've been fortunate to, to coach as aiding coach at different places, both the individuals and the team and the numbers associated with that. Everybody wants to see the numbers yep. and ultimate numbers is runs per game, right? Like that's what we're all chasing. And then we're going to start to talk about our approaches and how we're going to get there. You know, our less than two strike approach, our two strike approach. We are going to show videos that show both the physical side, the mental side, how we make adjustments both physically and mentally. And again, hopefully they get done listening to me talk, watching the PowerPoint. And they walk out and they're like, all right, this guy knows what he's doing. He's going to make me better. Let's go. And they're ready to, to get out on the field. So I don't know if that's the cliff notes, but just <laughs> kind of like going through the PowerPoint in a one minute spiel. Yeah. I believe you could make me better right now. So I, I think <laughs> <laughs> you got a lot of room for growth. So yeah, trust me. <laughs> um, you talk about the numbers in there, right? People want to see numbers. And I, I believe more so than ever players are, are more knowledgeable about the numbers, whether it's just, you know, stats in front of them and, and things like understanding OPS wins and understanding that they're chasing an exit velocity a lot of times. And they know stuff so much more than they maybe did in the past. How do you kind of filter that and let them, you know, because mentally, you know, if a guy, it's, it's good for them to understand it, I believe, but I think guys can get too wrapped up in it and then that's all they're focused on and that can get in the way, you know, we get too results driven, right? When, you know, hey, sometimes we just got to work through things and you, and you got to clear the head. How do you kind of filter that with guys? Well, it's important they know this is going to be a collaboration. Uh, when we first get out in the field in the fall, I'm going to watch and and way more than I'm going to talk. Now, we're going to start from day one with approach, but as far as learning them as hitters, that goes back to the trust credibility piece. You know, to your point, these guys have put in a lot of time with their swing, with their offense. The last thing they want to do is roll into a new program and have somebody making changes right away. So want to watch, and I always say, like, the first thing I coach with them, I want to be the most important thing, and that takes time, right? Like, the first thing you see many times isn't the most important part. So it's going to be a collaboration. They're going to play a big part in it. But ultimately, like, they need to understand that they are going to have the most production. We are going to score the most runs whenever this is about a team offense. Right. That's not an easy concept because we know in the travel baseball world, it's not about team. It's about individual, rightfully so. Like, I'm going up to the plate. I'm going to hit a baseball hard to show. I'm going to get a scholarship, right? Yep. Yeah, or the pro scouts. Like, this is who I am. And now I'm in college, and it's not about you as an individual. It's about us as an offense. Sometimes we need you to take pitches. Um, sometimes we need you to move a runner, whatever the case may be. So it's about buying into the offense and having them know, like, this isn't just me because it's self-serving for me to get them to believe that, that, like, you genuinely are going to produce more if this is about team because it's taking all the pressure off and you're just trying to go out and help with your team win a baseball game. You're not worried so much about your individual stats. Yeah, I find that fascinating because I actually I had a conversation this weekend, um, gave a, a talk to a couple showcase teams, um, and there was a, a couple players there. And the question was pushed to me about, like, what are some of your pet peeves? And one of my pet peeves when I was recruiting was taking fastballs in advantage counts, right? And then literally five minutes later, kid who has a lot of success at Air Force, um, played with the program, they asked him, like, what's the difference, you know, in, in your role and responsibility as a college hitter? And, you know, he's like, when I hit leadoff, it's about taking pitches. And it kind of almost seemed like, you know, backwards of what I had obviously said, because I'm telling these kids when you're when you're at a showcase event, like, let it rip 2-0, let it rip 3-0. We want to see bat speed. We want to see the, the aggressiveness to hit. And then you have a college kid who's like, you got to be selfless. You got to take that at bat for that team. Um, how do you balance, like, getting guys to buy in, in into individual roles. Obviously, when we talk about homers and walks, there might be a guy in your program, and I'm sure there are plenty of them that might hit right-handed and might not have the juice to go oppo tank right, right field where the wind normally blows here. How do you get that guy to buy in kind of to what his role and responsibility is in an offense compared to the, the left-handed hitter can, who can obviously take a ball way deep whenever he needs to? All right. Well, that goes back to the collaboration 
right? Like they've had a big say in who they are in our offense. You know, we want them to be happy and comfortable with their role, and we're going to work to develop um, that role with them. But ultimately, like this program offensively is about intent and aggression, and that's what that's what hitters want. That's what athletes want, right? Is they want to get up there and get their swings off. And that is a must in this program. Like we're going to be the aggressor with everything that we do specifically with how we swing the bat. Everybody wants to be a part of that. The cell becomes the, like you said, two Oh three one. What's best for the team. Many times, depending on the pitcher situation is to take that pitch. That's not best for the individual. Yeah. So as we sell to our hitters in this program, like we're going to ask you to take pitches when it benefits the team. I know I'm going to hurt your batting average. I know I'm going to hurt your slugging percentage, mm -hmm. but it's going to help your on base. It's going to help us score runs. It's going to help us win games in certain situations. So I find this fascinating too when we talk about obviously you know the being the aggressor and intent, but you know a core part of your offense is walks, right, and on base percentage. You know, just more out of curiosity, and you could very well say that. I'm off base, but a lot of my belief comes into like, sometimes the more you swing 3-0, the more walks you get, right? And it's kind of almost backwards because, you know, sure, you might put a guy in a situation where he does chase a slider that would have been ball four, you know, or, or God forbid gets off balance on something that, you know, it was in the strike zone and grounds out to short and everybody's frustrated because why would you swing at that? Maybe it wasn't the perfect uh, pitch to swing at, but what's kind of your philosophy on, you know, right time and place would be my guess. Like, you know, in there's certain situations it is, you know, you can swing with 3-0, but how do you balance that of giving guys the reins to be aggressive in potentially a 3-0 count where a pitcher just wants to throw a strike um, and also maybe giving them the take sign and, and things like that? How do you balance that? Yeah, so there's going to be two parts to it. There's going to be, I should say three. There's going to be the p pitcher piece. There's going to be the hitter piece. And then there's going to be the flow of the game piece. Um the pitcher piece we're going to have from a scouting report going in, knowing his exact percentages of pitch usage, his strike percentages on pitches. And there's going to be guys going right in that day where we're taking strike one just because he's a low strike percentage pitcher. The worst thing I think you can do as an offense with those guys is run up and start swinging right away. Now, guys with low strike percentages will have days, have outings, have innings where they throw strikes. So that's where the feel of the game comes in for those guys, right, is, okay, this guy usually throws 52% strikes. Well, today he's throwing 65, so you better be ready to hit when you climb in the box. And the same, you know, the reverse could be said of the guy that's normally 65% strikes, but today he's not throwing strikes. We're going to have to let the feel of the game dictate that. And let's be honest, there's hitters um, – 3-0, you're like, let's go, baby. <laughs> put one in the gap, put it over the fence. And then there's other guys like, nah, Chief, you're taking. <laughs> you're taking right here. Like, right, like the hitter's talent level, experience level, like is all going to play in for the uh, level of aggression at times. So you, you talked a little bit about scouting report in there and, and, and kind of it depends on the pitcher, you know, kind of with the, the wave of information you've received and you kind of have an understanding of every guy coming in, you know, when you're playing for the power in the walks, when you have some of these front-line guys, is there a big, you know, that generate a lot of swing and miss, I guess is what I'm looking for. When you're trying to build an offense that way, there's going to be swing and miss in your offense as well. Is that something that, you know, because I think that's what people get lost with is, oh, people who coach that way don't care about strikeouts. Well, yeah, we're not trying to strike it all the time, but you have to understand that it's going to happen. How do you kind of explain that to the guys and like, hey, it's okay, we're going to have strikeouts here. Sometimes they're going to they're going to come in bunches and sometimes they're not, but that's just a part of the game especially with today and the way pitchers are developing. It's like guys are are generating swing and a miss at a, at a higher clip than ever before. Yeah. It's about trusting your two strike approach. We work on it. I don't know, 40 50% of our rounds are going to be two strike rounds. So we're working hard and trusting it. And when you trust and believe in your two-strike approach, you can go all out with less right. than two strikes, and you don't fear swinging, missing, hooking balls foul, being early mm -hmm. with less than two. You understand, like, what your intent needs to be, and we're going to try to launch baseballs with less than two. Because if I get to two strikes, I don't fear striking out. I believe in this approach, and that I can have success now, and I can flip from my what we call our less than two-strike approach to two-strike approach. What what is the at least in your opinion the the two strike approach that you 
try to get guys to do. Obviously, everybody's individual, but what's yeah. kind of the main focus? No, the individualization, the collaboration, what has worked for them, what is working for them, but you're always going to try to deepen the baseball up and make a later decision, yeah. right? You're, we call it target shooting, or your external cueing is always going to be, not always, is usually going to be opposite mm-hmm. field yeah. with this guy. Some guys maybe have more success sitting on a speed of a pitch, with two strikes, it's usually going to be right that off speed. But most guys I've found have more success when they just think about trying to hit a ball, mm-hmm. a backside ground ball. <laughs> <laughs> Podcast to the ball, yeah. the, the backside. But, again, we're never we're never going to substitute aggression with yeah. all of our approaches. We're going to be aggressive. We still want to hit two strike doubles, two strike yeah. homers. We're just going to do it with a different approach. You know, I tell our hitters all the time, roughly half of your at-bats in college and professional baseball are going to get to a two-strike approach. So you better like, you better mm-hmm. be comfortable, and you better be able to put up numbers with yeah. two strikes if you want to have a good season. We're going to have a good season. Yeah, and I find that interesting because I, I gave, um, at the facility that um, I work at, I gave an in-season hitting clinic, and a lot of the talks, we had like a station that was kind of more like mental game approach, things like that. And a couple kids had asked me about two-strike approach. And really the foundation of it, and the reason I'm bringing it up is because you had kind of said it, was like really my belief is, is A, you should build a swing that's good enough that you trust it three times, right? And we are always at least body and posture and having it flow to the middle of the field. We're not rotating out. We're not collapsing, closing ourselves off. But when we get to two strike, it's just adjust your timing, right? Now we're on time for right center field. Some guys who have a tendency to fly open maybe you're on time for right field and that's just the the focus and like when we get in a 2-0 count you know it's foot on the gas pedal we're trying to you know be a little bit more aggressive maybe we're on time for left center field and I saw that resonate with a lot of kids because you know through their whole career they've been told choke up get closer things like that and you know it's just like hey just adjust what your timing is so how do you kind of get guys to rework what maybe they've done in the past, what they've done their whole career, kind of get them to understand like, hey, your swing's good enough to hit with two strikes. If you take three aggressive swings, you wouldn't be playing in our starting nine if you didn't have a good enough swing to make contact with one of them and put it in play with authority. Again, goes back to most high school players coming in have not, they don't work on their two-strike approach. Some never, most not enough. So RBP is always going to be scripted round has a goal they know what the round is and usually roughly half of those rounds are going to be two strike approach rounds and it's been hammered so hard into their head about what their two strike approach is and they know the importance of sticking with it in those rounds of bp so again it goes back to i trust with two strikes who i am that it's going to lead to success we know to get something you've got to give up something a lot of times with two strikes, you have to be willing to get blown up by an inner half fastball to have success with everything else. Like there's, you can't hit everything, you can't hit every pitch, right? So you got to kind of pick parts of the plate or particular speeds you're going to hit. I'm going to kind of switch up a little bit. Um, and obviously, we everyone kind of is now starting to understand that the, the the landscape of college athletics are continuously changing, right? NIL has introduced the transfer portal. What kind of advantages or even disadvantages have you seen of the transfer portal and even trying to build an offense, right? You, you, there's clearly a philosophy that you believe in offensively. You have to get guys in that help that, right? Um, you can't have a bunch of, of, of little guys trying to hit the ball out of the ballpark, guys who aren't capable of doing it. What has the transfer portal kind of either helped or, or – or or changed how you've gone about things because it, it, it's been so divisive, I think, um, of a topic just within college athletics. Yeah. We, we want to get, we want to build this program with talented high school players. But when we get into the spring, there's going to be a hole. Every team has holes. And the quickest way to plug a hole is usually with an experienced guy that has already had success. And that's the either the junior college route or the transfer portal. We're not going to run from that, but we're certainly not going to build our program here at Delaware on the transfer portal. Um, As far as my overall opinion of it, in college baseball, when the transfer portal first started, it seemed like the vast majority of 
what was happening was a positive where it was giving kids who weren't playing and needed a new opportunity, a platform to basically tell every other college coach, hey, I'm available and looking for a new school. And it allowed those kids to find a better situation. I thought it was highly, highly uh, beneficial at that point. Um, unfortunately, it feels like in the last year, maybe two, that baseball has become more like football and basketball where you have seen and nobody, I don't think, wants this is where the kid that's at a small or mid-major and having success and is playing and is having a good experience jumps in the portal thinking there's greener grass somewhere else. Like, I don't think that was the uh, intent of it, but that's where we're at. And, again, it's our job to embrace it and figure out how to use it to our advantage. And I hope that we do such a good job with our own guys that they love being here, they love being a part of this program, they believe in what we're doing, that we don't have that where guys are jumping in and leaving. You know, the portal, the guys that are having a good experience and playing and having the role, the majority of the – you know, if if done right, if healthy, we are going to have players going into the portal because they don't they're not getting the playing time here that they want. And we've had fair, honest conversations with them, and they want to go somewhere else and have a college baseball experience on the field playing rather than sitting on the bench. And that's the benefit of the transfer portal. And one of the things that I find so fascinating about the portal is, I really think when portal time and the the portal opens, you can kind of see the the strength of a culture of a program by, you know, more in college football, but how many guys hit the portal, right? You see Texas A&M, you know, NIL was a big part of their recruiting classes and things like that. And a bunch of guys flock to the portal. And then there's other programs where, you know, it's like a, we were expecting more than that, right? Only three guys hit the portal. Wow. That's, that's really crazy to think about. And I think it really tells a lot about the head coach and the culture that they've created. Talk about how important communication is, you know, because you talk about bringing in high school kids and wanting to build through high school and wanting to build that foundation. A freshman that doesn't play, that's had a lot of success their whole life, but you believe in them, right? You've seen them take good rounds of BP. You've seen them play good defense. You've seen them, you know, execute what you're expecting them to do. But Sometimes there's guys that are better than you. Sometimes there's guys that are in front of you. How do you communicate with that guy and get him to understand, like, hey, like, the opportunities here, even when people are other schools, I mean, we know, somebody's probably in his DM saying, hey, come here, we'll, we'll get you an opportunity to play. Right. No, the, conver the conversation, the communication is key, right? Again, it goes back to the trust, where if they trust you, and what I have become better with, and I'll um, – give credit to the last head coach I worked under, John McCormack at FAU, is he was completely honest, blunt to the guys, I would call it. And I watched how powerful it was. Again, the old saying, like, tell somebody the truth and they'll be mad at you for 24 hours. Lie to them and they'll be mad at you for a lifetime, right? Or however the saying goes. Yep. I watched that play out um, and have tried to emulate that as a head coach here where – it's constant conversation with our guys about their status, where they are in the program, where we think this is headed. And there's guys in this program that know that I think that unless things change, they're probably going to be best served after this year going in the portal and finding another situation to go play. There's not many of those guys. Um, most of the guys, I feel like we're doing a good job recruiting, know that we believe in them. And even if they're not going to play as much or we don't anticipate them playing as much this spring – um, that we're continuing to tell them, like, hey, keep working, keep growing. Your future's bright in this program and let them see the light at the end of the tunnel. And every opportunity we get to get them in a baseball game this spring, they can see, okay, he does believe in me. He is trying to help me grow as a player. I'll stick around here even though maybe I only got 40 at-bats this spring. This might be an obvious question, but how important does that make the development then piece of the program? If you If you want guys to, you know, believe and trust and buy in that like well I'm going to get better and that will be me out there in the starting lineup one day how important then does that make the development of being able to get guys better yeah we we as head coaches we as assistant coaches have to provide perspective to our players right it's if I go back it's been a long time to my college career and you guys yours like as a student athlete like you're seeing where you're at that day like it's all about that day right. it's so hard to see the big picture where this is my 24th year doing this like I think I have a much better perspective than they do where I can tell them like hey this is where it's headed and these are the things that need to happen for you to get where you want to be or we need you to be 
sort of thing. So that's one of the greatest assets we can be to our players is providing perspective and give them a growth plan to get to where they want to be, where we need to be. These are the things that need to happen between now and then. And how important is obviously the communication element, what you just spoke on? I mean, when you're focused on, you know, winning games and obviously everything that comes with that, there's obviously the nine to 12 that you're probably focused on, but there's also that 12 to, I don't know exactly how many hitters you guys have, but 12 to 19, 12 to 20 that are kind of there in that developmental aspect. How do you balance? I mean, you guys have a ton of time in the fall, but come springtime, it's like, we got to get game ready. We got to get prepared. But this guy maybe might need to be focused on something else. How do you kind of, you know, balance the two of being able to be kind of adaptable for the kid that might need a little bit more development? Um, and then the kid that, hey, you know, your swing is what it is. Like, we got to get ready to hit 94 this weekend and, and yeah. go, you know, hit good this weekend and score runs. Going to spend during the spring more time with the guys that aren't playing than the guys that are. So the early work is usually going to be those guys or – the best way to develop as a hitter, as a pitcher in our sport is to be playing in the game. Okay, so we got to develop these guys that aren't getting the playing time that they want or that they need to develop at the rate we need them to. So going to spend more time doing early work. And then we are typically, um, after our game on Tuesday, our midweek game on Tuesday, on Wednesday, we're going to have a live AB day where the pitchers that didn't throw or didn't throw enough are going to face the hitters, and the hitters are going to be there, going to be the ones that haven't been getting regular at-bats. And this becomes your season many times, as unglamorous, if that's a word, as it is. Like, it's going to be a pitcher, a catcher, and hitters on the field Mm -hmm. with the turtle rolled up, and let's go. Like, this this is your growth, because as I tell our guys all the time, when you're sitting on the bench, you have two choices. You go down in the far corner and, um, commiserate with all the other <laughs> miserable guys and talk about how you're getting screwed and yeah. they'll, they'll tell you exactly what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. Or as I tell our hitters, be the guy that's standing there saying, they call me Coach Mams, Coach Mams, don't put me in because you're not taking me out of the lineup. Don't put me in because once I get in, I'm not coming out. Like, be that mindset. Mm-hmm. So when you do get the opportunity, you're ready to go. And I would could go back and probably highlight a guy or two every year that was not in the open day starting lineup that you didn't think was going to play much and you look up the second half of the season he's playing every day it's one of the beautiful things about our sport and I will guarantee you I shouldn't guarantee you highly likely that that was the kid that was standing there saying don't put me in man because you're not taking me out like that's the mentality we want our guys on the bench to have I, I just think it's so key to have guys right like guys investing in their career right everyone like sometimes it's so easy to look at coach player relationship and you've talked multiple times about how it's a collaboration because they have to care more than you about their own career right to get better is there a way to build that mindset you're talking about is there a way to train that mindset is there a way to 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 give you know teach a kid how to have that mindset or does that just come back to the overall culture of the program if any of our players listen to this, they're going to be like, oh, boy. <laughs> they know what's coming. Like, you know, like every every coach, I'm sure, when the players are in the locker room or the hotel and they're making fun of the coach, like yeah. I'm, they're probably they, – not probably. They are so sick of hearing me talk about growth, growth, yep. growth, growth, growth. And they know that's where this – I'm going to take this question <laughs> is we are talking all the time about growth in this program. There is no finish line, right? Like it, I'm constantly getting better. We know in our sport, it's like age 27, 28, when most baseball players peak. Yep. Well, most of us don't get to play baseball until we're 27, 28. So we're constantly growing and getting better. And we are talking all the time about what can we do to get better and to to grow. And that has to be the focus of our, of our players is knowing, like, the day I graduate, I'm still going to be getting better as a baseball player. We know that. Again, you're not going to be, well, maybe with COVID, you are going to be 27 or 28. <laughs> Bryce Greenlee, one of our 60-year seniors, um, he's not 27 or 28. But most guys are not going to reach their peak when they're in college, right? Like if they're fortunate enough to play professional baseball until they're 27, 28, that's when they're going to reach their peak. So until then, it's all about growth. And I would even argue after, you know, the big leaguers that are still playing in their 30s, mm-hmm. they're still trying to get better. They're still trying to grow. So one of the questions that I like to ask, especially head coaches, and I'm assuming that this is going to be an an element of what these are, is what are some of the core values that you think define your program? Um, You know, I'm going to assume 
growth in some capacity. <laughs> there. Um, there. But what are, some, you know, what are some of the other ones that, that you kind of want this program yeah, to be defined by? The other, like, again, the one, the eye rolls from the players that they get, you know, so sick of hearing is response. We're going to, you know, that's going to be something we talk about all the time. How do we respond? How do you respond? Right. So growth response, accountability, um, along those lines, like we talk about everybody in our team is a leader. We don't have captains. We do leadership training. So we're all accountable, obviously, for ourselves, but we're accountable for everything that we do and the effect that it has on our teammates and spend a lot of time um, on that. As, as we say, you be the captain of you. And I would like to think on top of it, the overwhelming premise is being a good human being. Yep. Right? Yep. Where we're trying we're growing as baseball players but hopefully we're growing as humans so whenever this awesome experience of being a college student athlete ends that we're a better person as a result of having played college baseball i love that and and you know core values it's great when you can stick them up on a wall and they make you you know a a fun little saying with them or, or whatever but the important part about core values is being able to live that out within the program how important is is having that be player led all good programs are player-led, right? Right. So that's, again, one of the reasons we do the leadership training. One of the reasons we do, we'll spend 10 minutes at the end of every practice getting to know our teammates. We'll do a hero hardship highlight. The guys are going to stand up at the end of every practice and talk to their teammates at the end of every lift, talk to their teammates, shout out a teammate or teammates that did something well today in hopes that, you know, the older guys in the locker room on main street or being like, Hey man, that's not how we do things mm-hmm. here um, to the younger guys. And that's, that's being player led. I have to add this um, coach Hannah, who was the head coach here for 36 years at Delaware, our fields named after him. We're going to go down there and, you know, we've got a great facility as you know, but one over a thousand baseball games here. He's 91 years old. He lives a couple blocks from campus and I frequently will get, former players that'll reach out and be like, Hey, do you have coach Hannah's phone number? And he's 91 and he texts and he talks on the phone. (laughs) He's struggling physically, but mentally like he's as sharp as ever. And he'll tell you how the Phillies are mismanaging their, (laughs) he is is on. It's awesome. But the neat thing is like guys want to reach out and just tell them about the impact he had in their lives. And most of these guys now are forties, fifties, some of them, maybe even their sixties. Like he started coaching here in 1965. Wow. Um, I had a guy reach out to him last week, maybe it was a week and a half ago. And after he talked to coach Hannah, he sent me a long email about the impact coach Hannah had on his life. And the amazing thing to me, coach Hannah was a great baseball coach, a great human being still is obviously. Um, and you'll see why I say this is he, this kid who he hadn't talked to in 20 plus years, he told him all this stuff that he admired about him as a baseball player. And the kid even said in the email, he's like, I wasn't very good, right? Mm-hmm. but I was one of the best in the weight room. I was one of the best of students. I was a good teammate, and those are the things he, like, thanked me for being when I was here as a baseball player. And I'm like, like he's 91 years old, and he's still building up right. this man, this father, this business owner. Now he's still building up his confidence with him on the phone and hasn't talked to him in 20. Like, that's the impact, that's right? Cool. Like, you can yep. have as a coach and um, – you know, that we can have on our student athletes. It's awesome. Yeah. And that, I mean, when I look back and I'm I'm sure all of us in this room that have been on the coaching side, it's, you look back and wins are so important, right? But, you know, Dan and I have walked away from college baseball and the things that I'm still passionate about is not being able to celebrate after a victory. It's the fact that somebody felt comfortable enough to close my office door and come in and talk to me about life and be honest and things like that. And, you know, one of the things that obviously the higher you get and you're trying to progress your career, you have through through obviously your whole career and obviously everything you're trying to win ball games and all the things that come with that. How have you balanced throughout your whole career of being able to build that relationship? Because you do make a huge impact on kids' lives, positively and negatively. I can still remember in my head coaches that I had when I was younger that made a negative impact on me, right? Um, that still impact me to this day. Um, how do you balance that, you know, responsibility I mean it it really is like I think sometimes coaches take for granted you know how much power they have over impacting these kids and that story you told about coach Hannah is just a great example of that I you know 24 years I think 
the vast, vast majority of players that I've coached over those years would tell you that I've treated them the right way. Um, I found it really easy as an assistant to be that guy to build those relationships with them. I have not, as we mentioned earlier, I need to get better as a head coach. I know for a fact because our players tell me that I put too much emphasis on the wins. <laughs> and again, it goes back to all this stuff, like the importance of growing this program and getting it back to where it needs to be. And I need to find, again, we talked about it, but I need to find a way to get back to a little bit more of that assistant mentality with the players. Because what happens as a head coach is there's immediately this wall between you and the players. They're yep. really monitored with what they say. Like as an assistant, they don't, they just say anything. Yep. To the assistant, right? Yep. So it makes it easier because <laughs> there's no filter. You get to know them. And then as a head coach, all of a sudden, everything they say around you is measured. So it's like you're the FBI. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I got to get better at break. Like, they're not going to break down that wall. Most right. of them yeah. won't. Some of those, some of the guys don't care. Yeah. But most of them, like, I got to learn how to break down that wall and get deeper with that relationship. So when I'm 91 years old, hopefully some of the, my former players are calling me, you know? <laughs> you sit here in year 24, head coach of the University of Delaware. What? This is such a job interview question, but if, what if anything would you go back and tell year one yourself year one? Like, what would you go back and say? You know, in the next twenty four years, this is where you're going to be, and 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 what what advice would you give that that guy? Oh man, like, <laughs> I'm supposed to say like I wouldn't do anything different, but yeah. that's like the right thing to say, and it's always a lie. It's definitely it's always a lie. Definitely a lie. <laughs> I constantly have to remind myself. Um, and I say this all the time to our players, the journey is the reward. Yep. It all goes too fast, mm -hmm. right? So that would be like try to enjoy it more, try to enjoy the wins more, the people more, especially now as a head coach, like where, again, I put too much emphasis on the wins and hopefully I can grow. Like that always needs to be important. That's Right. Th right? I'm going to get fired if we yes. don't win baseball yeah. games. Like, yeah. I get that. But like enjoy, enjoy the journey, enjoy the people more, I guess, would be the overwhelming thing there's a lot of small things yeah, that i could yeah, say sure. about that too but again at the end of the day i can at least look myself in the mirror and know okay i've treated every player the right way mm -hmm. as a human being i may not have made all the right decisions with everybody but i've treated them the right way but if i had to tell younger younger greg mamula the coach like enjoy the journey yeah that's awesome. And and one of the things that you'd mentioned a couple of times that I want to circle back on a little bit is leadership training. And that's something that my ears perk up whenever I talk about that. What, what are kind of who do you go to? What are some of the things you do? Is it books that you guys read? I know a couple of programs will have a group of kids read a chapter and present on it to the team. How do you go about doing that leadership training? I'm a big Jocko Willink guy. I think his you know message is really powerful uh, for anybody who is in a leadership role or, you know, or being the leader of your own life like you talk about. Um, he talks about that a lot. So last year, um, John Maxwell's 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, we had t each player took one law of the 21 laws. We did not make them read the book. I know most of them wouldn't do that. I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not a reader. I'm a podcast guy. Yeah, so yeah. I'm in the car. I listen to podcasts. I listen to a lot of leadership stuff, mainly my way to work today. I listen to the John Maxwell Leadership Podcast. <laughs> um, so the guys will take that law, stand up in front of their teammates, explain it but more so explain it for us for delaware baseball how can we use this you use this to your benefit in your life within our baseball program that was last year it was good it wasn't great um i we need to do a better job coaches and players of circling back because as you know like you talk about something once it's going to die in a few days if not sooner like to, if you get to keep those things alive got to go back and reflect on the laws need to do a better job with that this year we took um from a john gordon book um, character i'm not gonna misquote this but characteristics of a good teammate mm -hmm. and tied those into leadership um, stuff so it's not easy um again like most of the guys just want to check the box most guys don't like to stand up in front of their teammates and talk mm -hmm. so most of the guys they want to read off their phone i let them do that last year this year i'm like no 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 I don't even, you don't even need to Google it. Just look at it and tell me what you think that means to you. That's what I want to know. I don't want you spitting back something you read off of the Internet. Um, what does that mean to you, and how can we apply it sort of thing? So that's what we did this fall. I am still working through, like, okay, what are we going to do next this spring? I have some other books, like, that I'm 
I'm thinking, you know, of, of going to, but it's not, it's not a finished product. We got to get better with it, but I believe in it. Like I believe in doing the leadership training over the captain thing. Yeah. I just, it, it's so interesting to me because a lot of times, like you said, it has to be organic almost, right? And you have to go back to it. Cause when you try and, like you said, you introduce something, it can be gone in, in a day, like guys forget it. And then, but the more you kind of bring it about and you start to see guys kind of believe in it and, and guys start to buy into it. And I always think it's funny. I just remember like you would start to hear players repeat their head things that like the head coach says, always, right? Like that's like, yeah. that's when you know, it's like, Hey, it's working. Like they're starting to get this, like they're saying phrases and stuff like that. It, I got to imagine though, like you're like you said, when you're new to the program and you just got here and you're trying to turn it around, is it something like you have a, we've talked about this already, but like you've had a million things when you get in, right? You talk about like so much you had going on. How important is that piece, though? How important is it to introduce these things to these guys? And, and where on that list of the million things do you have to do, do you put that? Because, you know, you've, you've mentioned it before, the best programs are player-led. So how, you know, how much emphasis are you guys putting on that? And, and you've kind of mentioned here you need to do more, I would imagine, a little bit, right? Yeah. So you have, you know, I was a head coach for three years at Westchester, um, left to go to Cincinnati. And in my mind, I'm like, I'll be a head coach in a couple of years yeah. <laughs> again. And it was a long time. Um, left Westchester 2009 and was the head coach here in 2023. So what, I don't know what that is, that 14 years, 14 I guess, years, yeah. of being an assistant. So during that whole time, and I think my whole coaching career as an assistant, I'm like, when I'm the head coach, I'm going to do this. When I'm the head coach and you have all these great ideas and what matters is can you really apply those and really do those? And that was one of the things um, that was important to me. So I've made sure we have done it. And again, it's got, we've got to grow it. We've got to get better with, with it, but there's like so many of those things and you, I hope I'm constantly evolving and being like, you know what, that isn't effective. Let's get rid of it. Oh, let's try this um, sort of thing, but always being respectful of our players time, right. You know, at the field, like I, I talk too much, as you can probably see in this <laughs> podcast. I talk in circles. So I'm like, try to be cognitive of that and try to like limit as much as I can how frequently I talk to the players. No, when I get started, I'm going to talk longer than I should. Um, you know, to a point like after games, I don't talk to the players. Right. Um, I want, you know, them just to break it down and then we'll do a game review the next time we're together. Yep, sure. Thanks. So oh, again, I'm rambling on. Go ahead. <laughs> that was actually going to be my question: was how you handled post game. If uh, if you say that you uh, talk a lot, because that's what I've seen a lot of coaches have trended towards of just like, hey, you know, we'll, we'll let's you know kind of detach, get a deep breath, and and wake up tomorrow, and and obviously be able to kind of recap what happened in an unemotional state, right? Because obviously wins and losses they matter, um, and you don't want to be emotional when you address a, a full team because that can impact those relationships that you're talking about. We're getting a little closer to an hour here, so obviously we, we want to wrap up with a couple more questions and, and be able to be respectful of all of our time and not you know spend the Christmas holiday uh, here all day. We want to get you guys home. But um, a couple guys that you were lucky enough to coach uh, for a couple of years, Ian Happ's a guy that Dan and I are both a huge fan on. He's got his own podcast and things like that. And then Nolan Chanuel, who skyrocketed through the, the Angels minor league system and, and debuted in the big leagues after, what, like 36 days of being yeah. a, a professional baseball player. What was the experience working with those guys? And, you know, how kind of cool is it to see those guys have so, so much success as players? It's awesome. Um, three current everyday big leaguers now, and I'll put Nolan in that category because he played every day last year and called up. But um, Joey Wendell, I recruited and coached for one year at Westchester before. I left, and then Ian Happ, I recruited, I coached for one year before we got fired at Cincinnati, <laughs> and then Nolan recruited and coached his first two years, and have been fortunate to still maintain a good relationship, you know, and talk to those guys, but love, like, I have become a Pittsburgh Pirate fan growing up in Western PA, that's been really hard to watch <laughs> for a long time, so I've kind of, not kind of, I have migrated towards watching mm -hmm. those guys, I love Major League Baseball, and I just, I wait for one of those three to come on TV and watch those games. And um, it's just so neat to watch those guys be able to do that for a career. And, like, probably all big leaguers, but those three, like the competitiveness of them from the time they set foot on campus, like, is what stands out to me, just how competitive those guys were. And 
I just assume to be an everyday major league player, even to get there, like you have to be just by the nature um, of our sport. But, you know, Ian just got married and signed a big contract last year and, you know, is right in the prime of prime of his career and still should have several good years of baseball in front of him. Nolan making it to the big leagues as a 21-year-old mm. last year, um, I think is going to be one of the best offensive players in baseball for a long, long time. I mean, his strike zone awareness, his bat-to-ball skills are amongst some of the you know elite. Like, I want to say he walked – his walks to strikeouts last year as a 21-year-old in the big leagues were one-to-one. Like, that's mm-hmm. almost unheard of, right, mm-hmm. for anybody at any age, but let alone first go-around. And then Joey Wendell, I believe this will be his ninth season coming up, parts of nine big league seasons. He just signed with the Mets um, at age – sorry if I missed this, Joey, 32, maybe 33. Like, how awesome that he's still playing, you know, Major League Baseball at age and was the ultimate late bloomer coming out of high school and again as I ramble on um Joey Wendell three sports Avangrove High School soccer wrestling baseball I watch him play a ton the summer after his junior year he is probably 5'7 140 um not really my type of recruit even though a smaller guy but he gets a hit every time and he makes every play and like we have to get this dude he's a left-hand hitter and I go watch him wrestle his senior year of high school, and I want to say he wrestled 130 or 135 as a senior in high school. And then he shows up to campus. So if that you know, wrestling match, say, was in December or January, and he shows up to campus that August, and he's 5'11", 170. Wow. <laughs> like, Joey, what happened? Well, <laughs> he was a late, late bloomer physically, and he wasn't eating because he was a wrestler. And yeah, once he yep. wrestling career was over and he started to eat, like, yep. <laughs> he started to put on the weight, and you could see him his freshman year. Um, and I can remember his peers, his players being like, wow, this kid is yep. special. You could see during his freshman year and all those guys as freshmen, like something, they got about 50 or so at-bats in their college career. And you're like, this guy's different. Yep. <laughs> so I'm rambling on. Go ahead. That's incredible. Yeah, before we get out of here, I, I want to ask, and we'll touch on this more throughout the day, but the move to the Conference USA, um, you know, that's a – it's a big step up. It's a great baseball conference. CA is a very good conference. You mentioned seventh last year in RPI, but th- there's some some good teams in in Conference USA. Some really good teams. Um, what does that mean for the program? What is that kind of um, vision for you guys now that you're making that move in the Conference USA? It's a big move, an exciting yeah. one, and and, and definitely going to bring about change. Yeah. Nobody knows yet what Conference USA baseball will look like, and I say that because. Um, there was a lot of coming and going from Conference yep. USA last year. I believe there's only four baseball programs that were in Conference USA last year that are in it now. So it all remains to be seen. And, again, we evaluate conferences based off of RPI. Mm-hmm. I think Conference USA this year is probably going to finish as the fifth best mm. conference, probably going to be a three-bid league. Mm-hmm. We're talking about high-end baseball we're talking about top 25 programs that have hosted regionals have been to super regionals dallas baptist university who very few people who don't follow college baseball closely are now familiar with it's their only division one sport like you want to talk about an elite program yep. louisiana tech sam houston liberty like it is high-end baseball um it's exciting for us that we're going to be a part of a part of that league and as we're able to elevate this program and be successful in Conference USA, it means we're going to be a national program. You got you got to get those frequent flyer miles, yep. though. How, how's gonna, <laughs> how's that adjustment going to be, and how do you think that's going to impact baseball specifically? The travel is going to be tough. Like, let's not let's not kid anybody. Liberty, we can bust to everywhere else is going to be a flight. So I'm anticipating ten conference weekends, five at home, five on the road. So we're probably looking at four conference flight weekends. There's mm-hmm. going to be a lot of miles. Some of those places are challenging to get to. Las Cruces, New Mexico, <laughs> Ruston, Louisiana. Hey, like you're telling me they don't have dr- direct flights there? <laughs> not out of the Newcastle <laughs> County. Um, <laughs> straight to Ruston, Louisiana. That's not a popular flight. Um, so some challenging places to get to. Yeah. But 
again, like why you're doing it that day, the travel, it sucks, but it kind of a neat thing. Like yeah, I've never 100%. been to New Mexico. I don't yeah, think right. many of our guys have been to Louisiana. Like it's, it's something different. It's something yeah. new. Some of those places you'll never go again. And I always think fun and exciting to go to new places. And, you know, I know because at Florida Atlantic, where we're in conference USA, they've since left, but like you roll into Louisiana tech they have a really a beautiful facility, a newer facility. Their old one got destroyed by a tornado. But you roll in, man, and there's 2,000 people screaming at you and heckling your outfielders, and that's the fun of it, right? Like playing in front of people and those type of venues against high-level talent, like it's enjoyable. So the last thing I'll ask you about the transition from to the Conference USA is do you want – you've spent some time in Florida – do you want your early season series to be on the road and you head south, or do you want to drag those warm weather teams to the northeast and make them play in the cold? What would be your preference? <laughs> um, Florida International in Newark, Delaware, <laughs> second weekend of March. Like let's 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 book it. Let's see. What let's you guys go. Are Bring up the boys from Miami and second week of March yeah. and see how they play when it's forty six degrees. In, yeah, in Newark, that's Delaware. wintry for them. <laughs> I. Again, grew up in Pennsylvania and coached this part of the country, and I got so soft with the weather being in South Florida. Like, we would go play at Charlotte and it'd be in the 50s, and I'd be shivering. And I'm like, mm. we used to like pray for 50 degree yeah. weather, right? Like, Seriously. they, it, uh, your body definitely adapts yeah, to its yeah. surroundings. Yeah, no doubt. Um, Coach Torsani and I were the ultimate, like, is, I guess, for the lack of a better term, when it came to, to weather, it was like if it was below 50 and like, man, maybe the ATs will push it back till the sun comes out or something <laughs> like that. So uh, I know he'll uh, he'll appreciate the warm weather and and getting to travel for those series. But coach, we, we appreciate uh, you sitting down with us. Obviously, we appreciate you opening the doors of the facilities and being able to let us, you know, get this in and hopefully get it out to to the masses because it is absolutely beautiful here uh the future of delaware i think all of us that listen to this will definitely agree is in great hands and, and we definitely appreciate you joining us here on the podcast thanks for the kind words and thanks for having me guys enjoyed it of course of course thank you to our listeners for tuning in that will conclude this episode of the backside ground balls podcast